Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast. This is a part two episode of the Texarkana Phantom Slayer, Moonlight Murder, various names. Yep. My name is Carrie. I'm Emma. I'm Dean. And Dean is going to continue the horrifying saga. I will. I'll start with a recap, though. We had the first attack on Jimmy Hollis and Mary Larry. They both lived because apparently the perpetrator was scared off. The perpetrator, you recall, was really scary because he had the pillowcase or something like that tied over his head, toting a gun with eye holes and stuff. And, the, and they were, of course, both those persons lived and they were able to identify at least the, the basic appearance of the killer. And she was treated like a dirty liar. She was, oddly enough. Which makes me angry. It does. Not oddly enough. And then we went to the Griffin Moore murders where it became lethal, where Richard Griffin and Polly Moore were actually murdered in a kind of a lover's lane, which of course is where the first attacks were located as this well. This was the 17 year old girl and the 29 year old man. Yes, it was. That also makes me angry. Yes, it does. <laughs> yep. So That's a lot about this makes Carrie angry. Not the murders so much as this history, the context of them. Then we had the murders of Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin, who were both roughly age-appropriate, but Carrie's problem with that was... I thought he was creepy. Yeah, which is terrible. I drove her to a lover's lane. Yeah, I have no basis to say that. No, so just I don't. Shouldn't, it. You don't. I shouldn't say it. Yeah. You shouldn't. You really but you all, my have other, just said it. But my other problem with that was her parents let her stay out way too late. Well, yeah. She was in a band. She was mm. 16, and she played saxophone for a band, staying out very late. Honestly, I'm fine with that part, because they always got her home safely. Mm-hmm. I'm not fine with the then young kid coming and picking her up and keeping her out late. Yeah. Carrie puts her mom lenses on all of her <laughs> murder cases. She does. She really does. So we ended with sort of panic had really gripped Texarkana. They were, we're going to talk a little bit more about this after... The next case, though, the next event, we'll talk a little more about just how, I mean, this really was, as the bad movie title said, the, tra- the town that dreaded sundown. They were in a- an intense panic by the Booker Martin case, because now it's like any teen out near a lover's lane is going to be slaughtered. Yeah. They were terrified. But the terror was going to be ratcheted up here with this next event, quite a bit, as a matter of fact. So it's May 3rd, 1946. It's a Friday. It's been about three weeks since the Martin Booker attacks. This one is different, however. It's after supper, so still pretty early. The others were fairly late at night or even the early morning. It's at a house. The house belongs to the Starks. Virgil Starks was a welder, but he also had this 500-acre farm where he and his wife Katie lived in a big like six-room farmhouse, and they grew cotton and corn. He was about 36 or 37 years old. She was about 35 or 36 years old. Accounts, as always, vary. They had known each other since childhood, but they did not have any children. They lived alone in this farmhouse. Hmm. It's about 9 p.m. What? They need farmhands. They had each other. Maybe they they probably had people to help with the 500 acres, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah, but you got to pay them. You don't got to pay your kids. Wow. That should be illegal. (laughs) But it's true. That's why farmers have a bunch of kids. Yeah, that is true. That's why anybody has kids, really, if you think about it. That and putting it, getting put in the nice home. That's always yes, nice. Yes, that's stuff. true. You have to be nice to your kids to be put in a nice home, though. Well, I'm in trouble. <laughs> so <laughs> the farm is located just off Highway 67 East. It's about 10 miles. That's 16 kilometers to the Good. rest of you. Good job. Northeast 
of Texarkana, and it's in Miller County, Arkansas. So this is the first event to take place on the Arkansas side of Texarkana. As you remember from part one, Texarkana is this weird town where there really is a Texarkana, Arkansas, and a Texarkana, Texas, and they straddle, and they almost function as a single city. They straddle the border. It's a pretty rural area out here, this 10 miles or so from the city. They do have houses, but there's no real near neighbors. You know, mm-hmm. the houses are yeah. all separate. Their house, the farmhouse, is set about 100 yards back from Highway 67. So it's quiet. It's dark. Scary. It's very scary. Although, again, every attack so far has taken place in cars, people right. parked in lover's yeah, lanes areas. Yeah. Katie has set up her husband, Virgil, with a heating pad because he has a very sore lower back. So she puts him in his nice reclining easy chair, puts the heating pad behind his back, plugs it in. It's the old days. Actually, I think they still have to be plugged in, don't they? Do yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Okay, sorry. They really need to have, I think, heating pads with Bluetooth technology. I yeah. Don't, I don't know why. Yep. It should Shh. have Alexa heating yes. pads. Alexa, yes. turn on. Oops, sorry. All right, Alexa, don't, turn on. Don't say that's allowed. <laughs> so Katie gave him the day's Texarkana Gazette, and she turned on the radio so he could listen to his favorite radio show. Okay, so he got them all set up there. Now, physically, this situated Virgil just really just a few feet from their big front window. It's closed, but he's in the front room of the house. So he's just, he's in the easy chair. There's no TV, just the radio. He's right by the window. And he can see out of it? Like there's no sure. blinds yeah. or anything? No. Well, there might be some curtains. Uh, but now you can see through. I mm-hmm. think the curtains are open. Are, are there wispy curtains? Okay. <laughs> sheer. Sheer. There we go. I like I like, actually, I kind of like Wispy better than Sheer. <laughs> wispy, even I knew what you meant. <laughs> makes more sense. So Katie goes upstairs into the master bedroom because she's exhausted from another hard farm work day. She puts on a nightgown and she lies down. It was pretty mild, so I looked it up. It was 83 high that day. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, so it's not a hot day, but she's just tired. Just after Katie had lain down, she sprang up. At the sound of breaking glass Uh-oh. coming from downstairs. <gasps> oh, God, that would terrify me. Well, at first, no. At first, she thinks, okay, did he drop his glass yeah. of water? I gave him a glass right. of water. He may have dropped it. He's got the bad back. I better yeah. go check on him. So she walked downstairs, walked into the living room, and as she got there, Virgil suddenly lurched up from his chair and then just plummeted and dropped right back down into it. Huh. She's like, what's happening to him? Is he stricken somehow? Mm-hmm. So she moves closer and she sees as she gets closer that the back of her husband's head was just a mass of blood. Oh my God. She also sees that the front window has been shattered. Yeah. She's not completely realized that Virgil had just been shot twice in the back of the head through that broken window. She oh doesn't understand God. that. Oh my God. Right away. No, you might think that the glass hit his head. Or yeah. 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 And and what's the, the window? You just wouldn't process that. Right. Mm-hmm. Why is that window broken? I don't yeah. know. So she ran to the kitchen, right, adjacent, and she starts to call the police. So one of those old-timey phones, so she has to crank it, apparently. What? Wow. It's hard to even imagine. What it is. It's 1946, but it's yeah. like in somewhat rural Arkansas. Yeah. So they have a crank phone. A crank, I don't know what the hell you even call them, but I, I can picture it. Yeah. But I, yeah, I can picture one, but... It's old school. She was only able to crank it twice before two more shots ring out. <gasps> oh, no. No. Both shots came from the shattered window, and both smash into Katie's face. Oh, no. Oh, Katie. By now, she has to realize that the gunman was standing right on the porch, yeah. right outside mm-hmm. the window, 
just feet away from her when she's checking on her husband and when he indeed shot her husband, mm-hmm. shooting through the window into the front room of their house. Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying. So she's stricken, but she's alive. One bullet had gone through her right cheek and exited just behind her left ear. Oh, my God. Apparently oh my under her brain, I'm guessing. It yeah. must. It had to have. The second bullet crashed through her lower lip, fractured her jaw, oh. blasted out several teeth, oh and then lodged God. beneath her tongue. <gasps> oh, my goodness gracious me. Katie fell to her knees, but then she struggled to her feet. She's a true Texan, so she crawled into her bedroom to get a gun. Wait, you said this was on the Arkansas side. She still, I feel like Texas she's a Texan. Hannah. I just feel, I feel she's got some Texas blood in her with that movie, yeah. right? That's her parents Texas. are from just I Texas. think so. Let's assume. We have it, no way of knowing that. <laughs> probably not assume. true, but let's assume that's true. So the blood is streaming over her face. It's blinding her, essentially. And she finds herself grappling through the house, half blind, knowing the killer must be right yeah. there. Mm-hmm. As she's, she has to you know, crawl slash stumble by him almost blind with blood over her face and terribly injured, oh assuming he's right there. Yeah. Take another yeah. shot at her. She's fully exposed to him. I would lay down and play dead. Would you? Yeah. You'd I probably it? would too. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, hope, he, hoping he would leave. You'd be dead. <laughs> but Katie must, it's not a bear. It's, it's a person. It's, uh, it's different. <laughs> Smarter. Not that much. Yeah. But. Katie must have realized that the killer, by now she's realized the killer had shot from the window because she, is, she starts to struggle her way back in the house to the, toward the back door. Yeah. She's apparently, she's thinking of escape through the back door. Mm-hmm. To her horror, though, the killer had sought a different vantage point. She mm. heard him tearing at the old kind of screen wire mesh around their back porch mm. to keep out the bugs and stuff like yeah. that. So she now figures, okay, I'm dead. He's going to break in. He's going to come through the back door. He's going to shoot me. So some versions say that she staggered up to her bedroom to write a goodbye note. Like, I'm dead. You know, leave all to the kids. Wait, we don't have any. Leave all to the farmhands. I don't know. But the killer, meanwhile, had indeed made his way into the screened side porch toward the back of the house there. So he's gotten in through the screen part. He's not in the house yet. Right. Katie heard him trying to climb through the kitchen window. So I guess the, the screen porch must go around a big chunk of the back and side of the house. So yeah. he's got into the screen porch area. He's now trying to get in through the kitchen where she just was a minute ago. Or she thinks maybe he's trying to break into the back door. She's not completely certain. Hmm. So she figures, if I have any chance, he's back there at the back of the house now. If I have any chance, it's right now. So she struggles through several rooms. The, the descriptions of this, by the way, make I don't. I would love to see a floor plan because it's super confusing. Yeah. But you read that she struggled through like the dining room, a bedroom, down the hall, through another bedroom, and then back into the living room, the front room where Virgil was. Yeah. All the while trailing copious blood. Yeah. She flees past her dead husband and out the front door. Oh, my God. Racing down the road in her blood-soaked nightgown and bare feet, (sighs) Katie got to the home of her sister and brother-in-law, which is about 200 yards away and on the other side of Highway 67. So she runs the 100 yards. I guess it's more or less kind of across the street. Remember, it's about 100 yards of the highway. And highway is a two-lane rural road. So there's no one. But still, that's pretty far to run it is pretty far yeah and then shot shot twice in the face yeah and then she goes another hundred yards to her uh, in her sister's house she pounds on the door right 
But then she kind of looks around and realizes it, the, the house is completely dark. They're not home. Oh, my God. Out of the movie, oh probably. Oh, my God. No one's there. So knowing the killer could easily follow her trail of blood yes. or hear her pounding across the, the road, Katie ran another 50 yards and made it to the home of her nearest non-related neighbor, a man named A.V. Prater. Thankfully, Prater answered the door. Katie was just able to choke out Virgil's dead, and then she collapsed onto his porch. Yeah. Oh, wow. Knowing, obviously, something terrible has just happened. Right. He's not completely sure yet, though. Prater, he drags Katie back into the house, in his house. He knows he needs help, so he grabs his rifle. Good. He steps outside, and he fires it off into the air. (laughs) He hoped this would get the attention of his next neighbor just down the road, a man named Elmer Taylor. This is now called a Texas telephone. Oh, my God. It's not really called a Texas telephone. And again, we're in Arkansas. Right. But it just It feels Texas. It really does. So I'm going to shoot in the air, and my neighbor goes, what is it? So it worked. Taylor comes outside of his house, and Prater shouts down at Taylor and says, get your car, Elmer. The Starks have been shot. Taylor drove... With Katie in the front seat. So Elmer Taylor gets his car, comes up to the Praetors. They, they put Katie in the front seat next to Elmer Taylor, who's driving. And A.V. Prater, his wife, and their baby Ooh. get in the back seat. And they're trying to sort of comfort yeah. Katie in the front seat, as they do. I mean, they didn't have a babysitter. They had to take yeah, the baby with of them. Of course. This horrifically mangled woman. And in you wouldn't want to leave your wife and baby in the house mm-hmm. no, you with a shooter you around. Yeah. Yeah. There's a shooter around there. So, as far as they know, he's yeah. still prowling the, the, the area. Yeah. So as they speed to the hospital, Katie dug one of her shattered teeth <gasps> from her mouth and she gave it to Taylor. It had a gold filling. Oh my God. <laughs> so Jesus. Here, Hold on to this. It's not cheap. She remained more or less conscious the entire way to the hospital, sort of slumping forward and blood just pouring yeah. out of her, but she's conscious and alive the entire way. And so she lives. Oh, yeah. And That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's truly amazing. And since Katie had lived, though, they were able to tell law enforcement right when they got to the hospital. So law enforcement is now on to this crime scene way earlier than they were on right. to the earlier ones, who they had to found hours later, the next mm-hmm. day even. But she probably never even saw him. She did not. She had no camera whatsoever. There was soon 30 law enforcement personnel at the site. They came from local cities, the two counties on either side of the border. There were Texas Rangers and even a couple of FBI agents. Troopers, state troopers, blockaded Highway 67 East for several miles from the Starks' house in both directions. Yeah. They were thinking, okay, if he's still in the area, we'll get him. But at least they figured, unless he knows side roads or something like that, or had already sped past their blockade, yeah. we'll get him. He had already sped past their yeah. blockade. Mm-hmm. They didn't get him. One Miller County de- deputy sheriff described how they are all kind of just running around trying to collect evidence and interview witnesses, right? It's just a, it's a chaotic scene. But there, again, there are houses in the area that are spread out. But this process could be very dangerous. You're going up to houses at night mm-hmm. after many shots had, had rung out, at least four shots, I guess, or five counting the Texas telephone. <laughs> So, quote, this is the deputy sheriff. We went to the other people's homes in the area to see if they had heard or seen anything. People would stand out near the front of their homes and yell at you to identify yourself before you got too close. You had to identify yourself or you'd be shot, which I frankly don't blame them. What they found told them the story that they kind of expected. So cash and jewelry left in the house untouched. It indicated there's no robbery attempt. 
That plus the shots coming from outside through the window told the police that this has really just been an assassination, not any kind of burglary or something like that. So this new incident was immediately connected to the Phantom Slayer events that had been mm, going on yeah. now for a couple of months. And while his men worked the scene, the Miller County Sheriff, W.E. Davis, went into the surgery while Katie was being operated on and questioned her, which I, so I guess she didn't have a general anesthetic. Doesn't sound like it. No, it if she was questioned, yeah. I mean, she's been shot in the face twice. She had a bullet under her tongue. God damn, knock me out. Well, but also, how is she going to talk? If she's being yeah. operated she's on. She's conscious, I do sure. not hear him. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He so, must have just tried to ask her yes or no Yes. Yeah. yeah, maybe so. She was. He was desperate for information. They yeah. thought, we can get this guy finally. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, police back on the scene found Virgil Starks either in his chair or had fallen to the floor. Again, accounts differ. His chair, though, was smoldering from a little fire that had been caused by the heating pad. Mm. Oh, yeah. Either way, think of that. he was dead. Yeah. The phantom killer had claimed his fifth victim, Katie, narrowly avoiding being the sixth. Wow. After she had a successful surgery, they took the bullet from her mouth, and they patched her up as best they could, and she lived, as wow. I mentioned. Investigators also found Katie's shattered teeth in the kitchen in a pool of blood beneath the telephone. Oh, God. And again, they found her trail of blood mm-hmm. all throughout the house. Is this one of those cases where when she gets home from the hospital, she's going to have to clean up all the blood? <laughs> probably, yeah. I don't know, but I bet probably uh, so. It's just so Hopefully awful. her neighbors cleaned up for her. Or the sunshine cleaning service did, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. So all were amazed that Katie had not bled out. Yeah. They were shocked she had lived through this thing. They surmised how the gunman had indeed shot Virgil through the front window and then waited for Katie to come, probably knowing she would come to see what the commotion right. was about mm-hmm. to take shots at her, which he did. There was some physical evidence left behind for this, a little more than, than there had been in the earlier cases. The killer had entered through the back door. As she's fleeing through the front door, he was getting into the house yeah. through the back door. His muddy shoe prints showed his trail through the house. He searched upstairs, apparently, he thought maybe she's hiding in the bedroom or hiding upstairs. So he went upstairs and came back downstairs and then oh. searched in the living room and all, mm. all through that area there, through the front door. And then they see the trail go to the front door and follow her out. So it looked like he's pursuing and chasing yeah. after Katie, but it, his little foray up into the stairs probably is what gave her enough time to get away and get to safety. Yeah. The killer had also left behind bullet casings. However... Oddly, different than he had it in the past, as you recall. These were from a 22 caliber rifle, not a 32 Colt pistol that had been used in the earlier crimes. Still, again, law enforcement immediately believed the perpetrator was the same man who had been murdering Texarkansans for weeks. Yeah. There was also a flashlight found in the hedge by the front window where the killer had set up his hunting blind, his murder blind. So he, he there was kind of shrubs and bushes there. He kind of hid down there, skulked down there, and probably listening, probably hearing what mm-hmm. they're doing. And as, when Katie left, he popped up, shot him, and waited for her and, and shot her. So I'm assuming they have plenty of fingerprints. We'll see. But they, at least they have this flashlight. He had dropped it in his rush to, to kill and had left it there. The press published pictures of the flashlight and asked anyone who had seen it to come forward. And finally, there were some fingerprints in some places on the walls and also some handprints, too. But the prints had been were smeared for the most part, and they were not very helpful. Plus, there had been just a ton of cops all over that house, and none of them were in gloves. None yeah. of them. This is 1946. Jeez. Yeah. 
again, these are rural, for the most part, jurisdictions. Yeah. It was not clear at all that any of the prints had been made by the perpetrator or by the law enforcement personnel in the house. Police in Hope, Arkansas, that was the nearest decent-sized town to the Stark Zone, they brought in dogs the next morning, and the dogs were able to follow two trails to and from the house. They led about 200 yards away to the highway and, and up the road where they were sort of lost the scent immediately. So there's a, a, a trail going from the house to the highway and from the highway to the house in reverse order in terms of chronology. He'd go to the park by the highway, walk to the house 200 yards away and walk back and got out in his car. And they, so they lost the track when he got into his car. They did find some tire tracks and some spent cigarette butts by the car. So that told them he parked there and waited a while, waiting for it to get dark maybe. Yeah. And then when it's dark, he crept across the way there and across the, I mean, they're, they're, I guess their front of their house is a hundred yards off the highway. So right. he's walking toward their house yeah. for that quite a while terrifying. exposed. And if they had, if they had looked out, they would have seen a person walking to their home with yeah. probably a, presumably a pillowcase mask on yeah. and a big rifle in his hand and um, not good. And then he had fled back and, and left by his car. The police sent the flashlight to the FBI in Washington, DC for analysis while they waited for any of these leads to, to come out, they decided that the attack was motivated by sex mania, quote unquote. <sighs> oh just, my God, they love saying that. They really do, especially back then. The mm-hmm. reasoning was that the killer had not stolen any money, even though there was some money in the farmhouse. So sex mania, solid reasoning. Money, sex, those are only two possible motives. And so the Texarkana Gazette of Sunday, May 5th, blared the headline, quote, Sex Maniac Hunted and Murders, all caps, <laughs> oh my by the way. God. Just right away, just immediately. Yeah. So sex maniac. I, I mean, they did have the context of the previous attacks, and there was sexual assault in those previous attacks. So yeah. it's not wholly without evidence, but it, 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 it just it seems like an out-and-out assassination. He shot at her. I mean, did he, was he planning on attacking her when he saw her by the phone? He just shot her. It, mm-hmm. Why didn't he come into the house when she was still upstairs before she came down to check on the husband? Yeah. So it's not clear. Alas, the flashlight... No fingerprints whatsoever. Damn. Had no helpful information. It was likely then that the killer had worn gloves and none of those prints inside the house were his. They were all the, the prints of cops. Mm. I mean, otherwise, certainly have prints yeah. on the flash. Right. He clearly dropped it. He didn't right. wipe it and then drop it. He dropped it, ran into the house, ran after her, yeah. and then probably chased after her. When he realized she was at someone's house, he got in the car and left. Yeah. yeah. So he was almost certainly wearing gloves. The... Police printed pictures of the flashlight, though, in the newspapers to see if they can just get any kind of a tip. And they had like a little, the headline says, have you seen this two-cell flashlight? You may be the one to aid in solving the phantom slayings. <laughs> that was in the paper. The reward now to, to nab the phantom slayer was at $7,025. And donations were coming in daily from concerned citizens. They pooled it with other rewards and it got to about 10000 bucks by now. Wow. Which is a pretty good chunk of change yeah. there. So as I mentioned, there was just, Utter panic in the streets. When the first murders of Richard Griffin and Pollyanne Moore, parents throughout Texarkana were kind of worried, you know. They told the kids maybe you should come home early, maybe you should avoid these lovers' lanes. You know, it was there was some concern. But then after the two more attacks and then the attack on the Starks, it the town went into a frenzy. The attack on the Starks was in a house. It was yeah. so different. It, yeah. it was that so the Texarkana Gazette helped calm nerves with its May 5th story that said the killer could strike again at any time, any place, and kill anyone. <laughs> Thank you, Texarkana Gazette. So go about your business. Yeah. You're, 
equally in danger no matter what you do. Yeah. So now it wasn't just concerned about your kids or whatever parking in lovers' lanes. It was everything, everywhere, yeah. anytime. It yeah. really was. So everyone locked their doors when they had never locked doors before. You always hear that, like, oh, we never locked the doors until right. then. First of all, you should probably have locked your doors yeah. already. Second of all, you're probably lying. I bet you a lot of people locked their well, doors. We didn't lock our doors when we were kids. Did, were you? Was your door always locked as a kid? Um, no. In Long Beach, California? Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he grew up in a different area. Yeah, than you Carrie, did. my door was you locked. You guys weren't going in and out during the day playing uh, and stuff like well, that? Well, we didn't live in like, no. Oh, okay. It wasn't suburbia. We were at my dad's yeah. house on every other weekend, yes. Yeah. At where I lived, the rest of the time, absolutely not, no. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, different uh, areas. Yeah. <laughs> the shades... Everybody put their shades down. They had lights on all night long. Guard dogs suddenly became yeah. very popular. Families just kind of hunkered down behind barred windows. They had the guns out. They even slept with guns next to them on the table on like a nightstand. They had their children sleep on cots or on sleeping bags on the floor next to them. And I imagine many of those kids lying with wide open eyes, yeah. terrified yeah. what the hell's happening all through the night. But... It was, I mean, the whole, they were on edge. They were, they were horrified. Some people even tried to booby trap their doors and windows. Oh, my. They built, like, jerry-rigged, like, alarms sometime where they just tie wires, and then they tie, like, pots and pans to the wires. So <laughs> yeah. if somebody tripped the wire, they'd hear the clang. Right. An article in Life magazine in June described one local woman, a Mrs. Henry Rochelle, because, as we know, in the 1940s, women got their husbands', husbands names. names. Yes. Of course. She was living with fear and booby traps. Quote, blanket is nailed over a glass door, table teetering on ashtray and will fall over if the door is opened, spilling nails onto tin trays and waking up Mr. and Mrs. Rochelle, who keep a rifle next to their bed. If doors open, pots will smash against vases on the floor. Wow. It was probably a really bad time to be a teenager that wanted to sneak out of the house. Oh, it was You just couldn't do it. You would have been pissed. Yep. Some people just simply retreated to motels and hotels in the area to ride out the chaos, and others left town to stay with relatives if wow. they had that option. A 1976 movie about the murders was, would be called? The Town That Dreaded Sundown. It was indeed. And it was not completely hyperbole. By the way, hat tip, do you know who was in The Town That Dreaded Sundown? Jamie Lee Curtis. Was she really? No, I didn't no, I make so. that up. She's four. Um, no. No, but she was not. Do you know who was in it? Someone, a favorite of mine anyway. William Don Shire. Wells of Gilligan's Island. Oh. She played Carrie. Uh, Mary Larry? Mary Ann. Mary. Oh, I thought, you meant, I thought you meant which Oh, no, on. she played um, Mrs. Stark. Oh. oh. She played Katie Stark. Oh, good for her. Good yeah. for her. I've never watched that Starks. movie. Starks. Sorry, Starks. I do want to watch the movie. Really? It's not great. Just out of curiosity. But yeah, it's a it does capture the this that it was not hyperbole in the sense that it really was absolutely a town on the edge. Yeah. It was gun sales jumped, locks sales it's jumped. It's a pretty everything. cool name for a movie. The it town that dreaded good, yeah. sundown is a cool That's a very title. I will give him that. Cafes and restaurants and other night spots saw their custom just plummet. Yeah, yeah. Particularly as it neared dusk. So their nighttime... Mm -hmm. Dead. Uh, just gone. It was just time to get home and hunker down. So the weekend after the Starks attack, the police were inundated by calls of prowlers. So the very next weekend, just everybody is seeing... They're outside my house right now. Mm -hmm. Get up here real quick. Every shadow was the killer. Everyone had a hair trigger. 
police responding to any of these calls began to pull up to the house with sirens on and just that we're a cop. And then they'd stand in front of their car, headlights on to show the homeowner, I'm a cop, don't shoot me. Oh my gosh. No neighbor or friend dropped in on anyone without calling first. (laughs) Knock, 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 boom. One hopeful beer drinker was shot and injured by a jittery barkeep when he just walked into the tavern at about dusk or just after dusk. Oh my gosh. Oh gosh. <laughs> Shoot first and then get your beer. You're a bu- bar <laughs> owner. You don't think <laughs> I maybe know. give him a second? If you're open. Yeah. Just, yeah. Wow. Yeah. A man who ducked into a doorway to wait out the rain while he was waiting for a bus, the cops were immediately on him and, and almost arrested him. Wow. One uh, person reported a prowler to the police, and the police came and investigated and found out it was the family's bushes brushing against <laughs> oh the window. Oh, my God. <laughs> so our redoubtable Texas Ranger, Captain Gonzalez, he helped immensely when on May 6th he told the citizens of Texarkana to, quote, oil up the guns and see that they're loaded. Put them out of the reach of the children. Do not use them unless it's necessary, but if you believe it is, the, Go ahead. The pro- do not hesitate. Yeah. Jesus. Thanks, Captain Good Gonzalez. Advice. The police begged citizens in the media to avoid rumors and rumor mongering because one rumor was that Virgil Starks had heard a car driving slowly in front of their house oh, no. for four nights prior to the attack. It was completely untrue and that he was in fear for his life and he knew it was coming or something like that. Mm-hmm. Utter nonsense, not true, but somehow that rumor had, be- had begun. And then later, by about May 19th or so, many people had come to believe that the killer had been captured by the police, but he's been held in secret by machine gun armed guards, or they had flown him out of the state entirely. Again, nothing to this, no reason to believe it, but just rumors (laughs) were spreading all over. Just, you know, maybe it made him feel better than us. Yes. I would probably lie to myself and be like, oh, I'm sure he's caught already. He must be gone. He's done. The police showing that they didn't understand irony, the police admonished people to stop blaming their neighbors, which had become rampant. But Bowie County Sheriff Presley said, quote, all of us are tense and are hopeful that at any hour, officers will announce they have the killer in custody. The people must not become so anxious to rid themselves of the killer, however, that they brand innocent persons as the murderer and believe unfounded stories. So the phantom killer was just consuming the town of Texarkana. What did they do about it? Well, the town fought back, damn it. Citizens set up overnight watches. They patrolled lovers' lanes. Vigilantes spread out everywhere all over the town looking for the slayer, kind of armed patrolling the streets. One night, an Arkansas trooper named Charlie Boyd and his deputy Tillman Johnson, they saw a couple parked in a lonely lane at night. Dummies. So they went to investigate. Johnson, Tillman Johnson, walked up to the car, identified himself, and asked if they weren't afraid to be out alone so late. The woman in the car then showed the police officer her 25 caliber pistol that she had trained on him the entire way. He was walking to the car and said, if you had not identified yourself as a police officer, I would have shot you. They were out there trying to lure by themselves citizens trying Jesus. to lure the killer out so they could kill him. I thought it was going to end up being two men in the car there waiting to... Oh, oh, just you wait. I, they did that. I'll, I'll, I won't give details, but yeah, they, yeah. They, that was tried. Uh, there was a star local football player named C.J. Lauderdale Jr. <laughs> I guess they were following his car and he started speeding away from the police car and they chased him for three miles. This was on May 10th. 
when they finally stopped him, he said, sorry, I didn't know you were police because you were driving an unmarked car. So they said, why were you speeding away from us? And he said, I saw someone suspicious board a bus and I was chasing after the bus because I was thinking it might be the Phantom Slayer and I was going to get him. Oh, wow. So you're, you're a hero, CJ. So Captain Gonzalez warned the, quote, teenage sleuths to knock it off because, quote, <laughs> it's a good way to get killed. Yeah. Yet Gonzalez himself had recruited teenagers to sit in cars as decoys. Oh, my god! Hoping to draw the killer and catch him in the act, or right before <sighs> the act, apparently. So, good Lord. Police also used mannequins as their parking partner sometimes. So a cop, which is a, a be- better step than yeah. local kids, a cop would have a, a mannequin, presumably a female mannequin, sit next to them in the car, hoping, again, to lure the killer yeah. out and get him. Some cops also hid in trees by Spring Lake Park, thinking he might return to where he, uh, he captured the Booker and Martin incident took place, right? He did not go back. He never went back to any of these, these same locations, but they, you know, hid in yeah. trees the whole night just yeah. in case. The progression of the investigation can be seen in the reaction to each crime. The initial Hollis and Larry case, very little attention. No suspects were brought in at all. Law enforcement simply thought, okay... They did something bad, but the perpetrator probably left town. It wasn't, no one got, yeah. you know. Yeah, he got his skull cracked open. Jesus. But let's move Nobody on. Nobody died. Yeah. Over 200 people were brought in for questioning following the Griffin and Moore case, though. Hmm. Three were brought in with blood on their clothes, even. Oh, what? But all were cleared. Just, Just walking around with blood on their blood, clothes? Had some blood. Who okay. knows? Hangnail and bloody nose? What? You never know. Out hunting. I don't know. Oh, had blood and blood in those. After the Martin and Booker murders, the search for suspects widened to 100 miles around Texarkana. Wow. Everyone was seen as a possible suspect, white or black, men or women. I mean, it just went an exhaustive wow. dragnet after that case. Because the police did not find Betty's, Betty Jo Booker's saxophone at the crime scene of that case, they had pawn shops. They would keep an eye on all the pawn shops and questioning pawn shop owners and other places like that where someone might try to sell a saxophone. Right. But uh, then they found it. Well, they did, but but a man in Corpus Christi before that on April 27th, he was he seemed kind of nervous to a pawn shop owner when he oh, he seemed kind of nervous to a pawn shop owner when he tried to sell a saxophone. Mm-hmm. It was actually I'm sorry, it was at a music store. And and then when the attendant said like went back to talk to the manager, he fled. So that was like, that's a hot lead. Mm -hmm. He was arrested two days later. He was identified and arrested and brought in. And they found out he had just bought a gun and had a bag of bloody clothes in his room at the cheap hotel he had been staying at. He did not not have a saxophone, however. So they think, had he ditched it? What's going on with his bloody clothes? Um. He said the blood was his. He'd been in a bar fight. And like, what's all this about? What are you guys yeah. you know, worried mm-hmm. about me for? After several days of interrogation, his story finally checked out. He had been in a bar flight. They were his bloody clothes. And of course, it was only later that Betty's saxophone would be found in the area right by her body, where her body right. had been left. Remember, it was about six months after that they found the saxophone. Okay. So for mm-hmm. a long time, they thought that would be a good lead. Yeah. Which is smart. Yeah, it's good. It's good work. And he's he looked. I mean, yeah, you flee, yeah, yeah. and you have bloody clothes. We needed to talk to you after the Starks murders. The police 
did find uh, someone they thought, kind of a usual suspect type of person. He was a 46-year-old drifter named Charles Coleman, and he had been arrested on suspicion of rape mm. just a few days after the killing of the Starks. Oh, so a verified sex maniac. Yes. Yes, yes, he was. When they found out that he had been in Texarkana when the first two murders were committed, they locked him up and looked into it. Lucky for Coleman, though, he was able to prove he had been in Colorado during the Starks killings, and the police cut him loose. Because, again, they're mm. working on the assumption that this is all, they're all the connected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another false lead was a local man known only as Sammy, and he was brought in because his car tires matched those found at the Paul Martin crime scene. Remember, they, there was tires there, and mm. he was killed and left on the side of the road. Right. This man, Sammy, denied having been there, but they gave him polygraph tests three times, and he failed all three times, for what it's worth. Yeah. Sammy also was a huge strike against him, black. So he, Sammy, must have been absolutely shocked when Sheriff Presley said, you know what? I don't think you did it. Which is <laughs> like, what? what? Are, you sh- are you sure? <laughs> and so Sheriff Presley had him hypnotically regressed. Oh, my God. And oh my. Sammy finally admitted, yes, indeed, I had been by the park the night of the, when Paul and Betty Jo were murdered, but I just did it to, to pee on the side of the road. I didn't do it to kill. I wasn't killing two kids, and they cleared him and let him go. Good. Shockingly. They probably could, I don't know much more to, details of that, but they probably couldn't, couldn't put him in anyway. right. yeah. to the other ones either, yeah. So frustrating dead end, but then the police caught a break. <gasps> or rather, a rookie police officer gave them a break. Oh, Though he was only 33, Max Tackett was a rookie on the Arkansas State Police Force. He had an idea, Max did. He noticed that a car had been stolen the night of each murder. Those stolen vehicles had then then been found not long after the murders, abandoned. Had that been the killer stealing cars to commit his crimes, Max thought. Yeah. When Tackett heard that a car had been stolen just before the Starks attack, and that same car was now spotted in a parking lot on June 28, 1946, he said, I'm going to go stake out that scene, see if someone comes and gets it. Sure enough, it's in the middle of the day, so he thought maybe they still have that car from, and they're using it. So he stakes out the scene and waits for someone to come to it, and someone does. To his surprise, though, that someone is a woman. And she had been in a nearby store doing some shopping. She came back to her car. He arrested her. her she, it was 21-year-old Peggy Swinney. And she was taken for questioning. Peggy admitted that she and her husband were car thieves. It's like, okay, fine. We <laughs> yeah. steal cars. I'm not lying. Well, at least her husband was. And she said, I, you know, he makes me help him. I don't have much choice in it. After all, we're all newlyweds. Yeah. They had just been married in Shreveport, Louisiana. Her husband at that time was not in Texarkana. He was down in Atlanta. Again, that's the Atlanta in Texas, oddly, who knew? Mm. It's a small town about 25 miles south of Texarkana. Tackett, the cop, called the other Atlanta police force, and he found out from them that there had been a man in their, a man in their town trying to sell a stolen car. Mm. So he said, I'm interested in that guy. He had, that person had tried to sell the stolen car to a man who then reported that to the police because he suspected the car was stolen. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that man that witnessed potentially to this who this person is didn't really get a good look at the guy trying to sell him the car. He's just sort of a nondescript car thief. <laughs> and he didn't think he could recognize him. So Tackett thinks, okay, well, let me think here. 
the witness had a very distinctive look about him. Mm-hmm. He was an old school kind of a cowboy vibe with like a big eye hat and he had boots on. I'm assuming also assless traps. Probably. I don't know. You would assume. <laughs> you would think. Spurs. <laughs> Probably. So Tackett told the man, quote, you wouldn't recognize him, but he might recognize you. Mm-hmm. So Tackett had an idea. He's okay. a good cop. So he figured the thief would be shy to see his intended victim or react when he saw this person who could ID him. So Tackett took the cowboy back to Texarkana. He's hoping that this Peggy Sweeney's husband had gone back to Texarkana or, and this person was one and the same person. And he took him to like bars and other places he thought a car thief might hang out. And just Wait, like walked him around. They didn't get Peggy's home address when they arrested her? She was staying in a hotel. Oh, mm. okay. And again, they don't know that this person is Peggy's husband. But they just know he's someone trying to sell a car, so maybe he's connected. If Max Tack is, is his idea is correct, he could be okay. the guy. They go through bars, no one, you know, reacts the way he's hoping someone will. So they walk into the bus station downtown, Texarkana, another place. Maybe a, a car thief is maybe they, they're trying to leave the town. Tackett spots a man immediately pop up from his seat and run, flee toward the back of the building. They're on the second floor, by the way. He, this guy, so Tackett chases after him and catches him just before he's trying to get down the fire escape of the building, mm-hmm. and Tackett arrests him. The man then said something very odd. After begging the officer not to shoot him, Tackett said, quote, I'm not going to shoot you for car theft. The car thief snarled at him and answered, Mister, don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. It's oh. a pretty incriminating thing to yeah. say. Yeah. And stupid, but then again, <laughs> idiotic thieves thing. are dumb yeah. for the most part. Cr- criminals are mostly fairly dumb. Karen and I were talking about the, talking about this the other day. Master criminals, these genius criminals—that's pretty much a fictional thing. Yeah, they, there there aren't really any of those people uh-uh. in real life. Mastermind crimes don't really happen. Yeah, they happen in the movies. But he's he's even dumber than the average. Yeah. Criminal, like Mister. I know you want me for more than. I mean, shut. Just stop talking, dude. The man Tackett had arrested was indeed Yule Swinney. Swinney was a petty crook, but a prolific one. He had done time for car theft, burglary, assault, counterfeiting. Wow. He was a true habitual criminal. He's busy. Very busy. The police searched the motel room where Yule and his wife Peggy had been staying. Something in there caught their eye. There was a shirt stuffed in the closet, like back Mm -hmm. in the corner of a closet. The pocket on the shirt had the name Stark stenciled on it. Was this a trophy from the Stark murder? The Stark's murder? While the police searched in his room, wife Peggy was even more helpful. She was very helpful. Under pretty light questioning, she let all out. She flat out, well, I shouldn't say that. Under pretty intense questioning, she flat out told the police that her husband was indeed the Texarkana phantom killer flat out yep it's him you got him he did it she claimed she'd even joined him in one of his murderous excursions though she said she had not taken any kind of an active role in any of the slayings on that on that either she just he just made her come with him Mm -hmm. company her story was pretty detailed it was pretty compelling but it was also contradictory and not terribly reliable it, I'll tell you, I'll get more on that in a second, but it's centered on the Martin Booker murders because she said that's the one she had gone to, essentially. Here are some excerpts of her story. Quote, 
Swinney, she calls, she calls him Swinney, her husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's weird. weird. It's weird. Swinney asked me if I wanted to go to Spring Lake Park, and I told him I would if he wanted to. After getting into the park, Swinney drove on around the park until we came to a dairy over beyond the park. Swinney stopped the car near the dairy, and we drank four bottles of beer that we had. Nice. Swinney got out of the car, and I asked him what he was going to do. He said, I'm going to take a leak. So Peggy claimed that she was left in the car for a long time alone when she heard something that might be the sound of gunshots. Quote, it was just getting daylight when Swinney came back to the car. He had been gone for four or five hours. When Swinney came back to the car, I saw that his clothes were wet up to his knees and damp on up to his waist. Hmm. Before getting out of the park, we passed a car, which I remember as being a coupe. I don't remember what color it was. Paul Martin's car was a coupe. Swinney stopped by the car. He got out, went back to the coupe, parked on the side of the road. I saw him look into the car and get something out of it. He brought a large black case, which looked like a hard leather black box, and put it into the trunk of the car we were in. I asked Swinney what he was doing, getting something out of this car. Swinney replied that a friend told him to come out here and get it. We then left the park and drove to my mother's on Richmond Road. So that's her story. Hmm. And that was the night, and that fits more or less the facts of the Paul Martin Betty Joe Booker murders. Peggy, though, was a frustratingly slippery source. She would recant her story and then reaccuse her husband and then recant again, rinse and repeat several times over the next following weeks that followed her initial confession. With each retelling, the details shifted a little bit. The story would morph a little bit every time she told and retold her story. And though some of the details that she apparently knew were intriguing, the ever-changing tale was and should have been a red flag to the police. Yeah. It really mm-hmm. should have been more of a red flag than, than they took it as. To make it worse, from the standpoint of actually pinning the murders on Swinney, Peggy said she had refused to testify in court against her husband, and she could not be legally forced to do so because right. they were married. Also, over the weeks of her accusations and her recantations, Peggy spoke to over a dozen law enforcement personnel. Everyone was in and out of there questioning her and talking to her. Right. None could then be sure that some or a lot of her details had not come from one of their colleagues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't only a problem with what she said to whom, but what they had said to her. That right. was the key. What a her, mess. Yeah, it is a, a, a messed up investigation for sure. Her story changed constantly, as I mentioned. And as you might have noticed, she got many of the de- details wrong, as well as the times and places of the murders. Mm-hmm. So did you notice that Peggy had said Yule had taken clearly was meant to be Betty Jo's saxophone right. case and had dropped it in his trunk. This was before they had found the saxophone. So when they then found the saxophone later, where near where Betty Jo's body was found, Peggy changed the story to match this new evidence. But even then, so she said, oh, yeah, no, no, he uh, took it to some bushes and threw it in the bushes. But even then, she could not locate the exact place where he had yeah. actually tossed it into wow. the bushes. And then there was this letter. The police had intercepted a letter Peggy had written to her parents not long after her initial confession. In it, she claimed she had done the confession just to stop the police questioning. She was just exhausted right. and tired mm-hmm. just to shut them up. She said what they wanted to say. And this is a letter that she, unless she's a master criminal, she right. didn't think they were going to see. She sent this to her parents. We'll, we'll put a picture. We'll have a facsimile of it on the website and Facebook. Here's a quote from it, though. I guess the sheriff on the Texas side and that FBI man had been out to the house, meaning her parents' house. 
for they was up to see me yesterday. They still think Swinney killed those people. Swinney, by the way, is in all caps. I have no idea why. That's weird. She's typing it, by the way. I didn't know what to do. They don't believe me. So what else can I do but to tell them that he did it? <laughs> they will believe a lie. If I send Swinney to the chair, that would be on my mind the rest of my life. For taking his, period, for taking his life when he was not the one that killed that little boy and girl on April 13, 1946. I could send him to the chair, then I would be killed. That's so and so that you all rented that house from said that he that we was in the, his field on April 14th, 1946. This makes a zero. That sense. is a lie. Underlined twice. I wish that dad would said something to him about it too. I have no idea. She's, <laughs> uh, She's having trouble there. Yes, yes. The last quote from this letter is as I don't think that they won't I don't think that they won't to sent me to the pen but it is Sweeney they are after. So basically they're saying, tell us Sweeney did it, tell us Sweeney did it, yeah. she told them Sweeney mm-hmm. did it. Yeah. And they supplied, whether wittingly or not, they supplied her with the details to feed them back those same details. Right. But when they asked her for more details, she didn't know them, she got a lot of things wrong. And remember, the saxophone's critical because they thought that at the time he had taken it yeah. and he had not. And we've seen that happen a million times. Many times. On Dateline in 48 mm-hmm. hours. Mm-hmm. Max Tackett, the police officer whose idea this was, he would always think Sweeney was the killer. Most of the other law enforcement personnel on the case became pretty unconvinced that it was Sweeney. So Yul Sweeney was never charged. One of the problems was that his prints did not match those found at the Starks house, which we know are suspect anyway, but they also didn't match prints found at the car parked at Spring Lake Park, Paul Martin's car. So that's a hole. There were some problems also with Tackett's theory on his face. The biggest was that the car theft timeline kind of didn't work. The first car he stole, Swinney stole in Texarkana, was a green 1941 Plymouth. It was not stolen until the night after the Griffin Moore murders. And he had not abandoned it, but he, they still had it even three months later. Mm-hmm. Swinney also had not stolen the car the night of the Hollis Larry attack. And it's questionable he even had a, ta- a car at his disposal on that night at all. Witnesses had apparently seen him get into a cab the day after the Hollis Larry attack. So hmm. it, there's just some problems with the, whole, the, the theory itself. Swinney would spend the next decades in prison when he was sentenced to a life term for being a habitual criminal, kind of a three-strikes wow. route, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was released in 1973 when his sentence was overturned on appeal. He then spent his last years in and out of prison for small offenses like theft and counterfeiting. He died in 1994. So he was a habitual criminal. He probably should have been left in prison where he belonged. Swinney was not the only seemingly viable suspect at the time, however. I'll talk about a a couple here. One, the the key one that most people who theorize about this think it might have been, besides Yul Swinney, was a guy named Henry David Duty Tennyson. (laughs) Duty. Duty. Mm-hmm. D O O D Y. D O O D I E. Okay. He was Great found name. in Fayetteville, Arkansas, on November fifth, nineteen forty-eight. So a little more than two years later, he was just getting started. He was a freshman at the University of Arkansas at the time when he was found dead. He had poisoned himself with cyanide. Oh wow! So just another tragic case. It's someone seeking a permanent solution to a temporary problem. He's a, he's having the freshman blues. Gone from home to University of Arkansas. But then the police checked his rented room, and they found a note. (gasps) The note from the 18-year-old claimed he had been the Texarkana Phantom 
killer. When huh. he was 16? When he was 16 years old, yeah. I'll talk about that in a second. But yeah. Huh. It read in part, quote, why did I take my own life? You may be asking that question, question mark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I am. Okay. But you may be asking that question. Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, this does not sound like a suicide note <laughs> at all. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. End quote. I remember this letter. Do you? Yeah, in the documentary I watched, uh, they talked about this. That's, I and mean, that's the only reason they'd ever suspect this, yeah. this kid of yeah. doing it. Other letters found with his stuff refuted this self-accusation, though. The note also left out the Griffin Moore murder completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But nonetheless, the police were intrigued when they found out that Tennyson, duty, had been in Texarkana on the day of the Starks attack. They were even a little more interested. Hmm. However... Like I said, the letter left out any mention of the first attack on Hollis and Larry, as we'll talk about in a minute. And it's not clear, but we'll talk about this in a second, but it's also not clear that all of the attacks really were the same person, especially the Starks. And he claims in this, I did the Starks attack. So the police then tracked down a friend of Denison's who swore they had been together the whole night of the Starks incident. And so Duty could not have committed yeah. that crime. Again, he was 16 at the time. Yeah. Duty's prints, like Swinney's, were also not a match for any of the crime scene fingerprints. Yeah. And finally, no weapon Duty had access to match the murder weapons, either the 22 right. rifle or the 32 Colt pistol. He didn't have access, as far as they knew, they could tell, to, to that kind of weapon. Right. And of course, again, he would have been 16 years old yeah. when the murders occurred. Which doesn't mean it's impossible. Doesn't mean it's impossible. It's not impossible, but it's less, less likely. likely. Yeah. Still, uh, he was a troubled, probably psychologically unbound kid, but he was not yeah. the, the Moonlight yeah. Killer. Yeah. No way. He wanted to go out with a bang. Who knows? I mean, he's, yeah, he's yeah. troubled. Yeah. And obviously, he committed suicide. I mean, so. it's not out, like, people falsely confess to crimes on their deathbed all the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and they also do the opposite, too. Yeah. They don't commit to crimes that we know they did. Yes. So every, the, right. the, the whole deathbed confession, like it's some kind of a... Sacred. L- is, right. is utter nonsense in yeah. either direction. Duty, that was not the only possible. For a short time, the police said they were chasing a possible escaped German PLW, a prisoner of war, mm. who they thought was at large and was so apparently taking out his vengeance on the people of Texarkana for some indiscernible reason. I don't know. Well, they held him prisoner. But you just, you, so you wait around shooting people on lovers' lanes over weeks and weeks on a schedule? I don't Everybody know. deals with trauma differently. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a, they had a, a very specific description of him, and they said he had stolen, stolen a car in Mount Ida, Arkansas. The police eventually, though, said this POW had disappeared. It's likely he, uh, utter nonsense. Some jingoistic cop who yeah. knew there was a, who thought there was an escaped German POW just said, okay, that's him. It's speculating. It's just not, yeah. it's, there's no way it was him. On May 10th, though, a drifter in Atoka County, Oklahoma, knocked on the door of a Mrs. Harmon, and he asked her for money, food, and turpentine. Okay. Oh. As you will. As you will. When she said she didn't have those things, <laughs> he yanked her outside by her hair, and he Jesus. threatened to rape her and kill her. Jesus wow. Christ. He said, I might as well, because he'd already killed three or four people. So a man on a horse then just luckily rode up toward the house, and that scared him off. The police eventually arrested a man who roughly met the description that she gave. 
height and weight, and he had a heavy beard growth on his chin, right? They eventually cleared him, though, but not before they sat him in jail for three weeks to let his beard grow back, since when they had arrested him, he was clean-shaven. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, you're clean-shaven now, but let's get your <laughs> beard back check. and we'll see if you're the guy. And he was not the guy. Jeez. Ralph B. Bauman was a disturbed man who had fought in World War II, and he lived in Los Angeles at the time of the murders. He went to the Los Angeles newspapers when these, the murders were occurring, because remember, these made national news, and he tried to sell them on the idea that he was the Texarkana killer. He didn't find any takers there. The, the reporters, you know, poked holes in his story immediately. Yeah, of course. And so he went to the police, where he again <laughs> gave his confession for his supposed sins. Wow. He said he'd lived for danger, <laughs> police, <laughs> and he had been in a coma. And when he awoke, he felt he was fleeing something. Okay. Was that something? His guilt in these famous oh. murders of the time? He thought maybe it was. So he maybe thought, really thought he did it. He really did. Mm. He was, again, I very see. unbalanced. Yeah. He said, maybe that was me. But if not, maybe they can help him get a job as a stuntman for one of the Hollywood studios. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, oh. do you know anyone in the biz? <laughs> he's, so He's got a plan. Yeah, he does. That was just, I mean, you know, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. If you don't know someone in that business, you got to do what you got to do. Yep. There were other false leads and false confessions, but no suspect ever was even taken remotely seriously by law enforcement. Um, in 1999 and 2000, some unnamed woman called some of the family members of the Phantom Slayer survivors, right? And she apologized for, quote, what her father did. Oh. Hmm. Some point out that Yul Swinney never had a daughter, as if that's tangible evidence. Right. Stupid. The only reason I mention this is I want to comment on how stupid it is to take anonymous confessions or admissions on the phone or anything like that remotely yeah. seriously. Yeah. And you find time and time again, you find that they do. Like they looked into yeah. it. What? You don't even look into it. Yeah. It's just some <laughs> idiot on a phone. Jesus. The, the, the internet troll of 1999. Mm-hmm. They're always hoaxes. Just knock it off. You're wasting, yeah. wasting time. So they're, they're, I, they really are kind of the ancestors of internet trolls, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Bastards. They are. So the shadow left by the Texarkana Phantom Slayer spread to nearby towns and far away as Oklahoma City. So other, they thought, this guy might move around, and they were mm. scared as well. Yeah, that, I would have assumed that he left yeah. Texarkana he because did it for was a long time. too dangerous. Yeah, and it know? wasn't that big a town, and there was yeah. vigilantes and people roaming around yeah. everywhere. Fear hovered over Texarkana itself, though, all summer long. But when finally there had gone months without any more mayhem, they kind of stabilized and started to, to get past it. By October, the out-of-town law enforcement began to quietly leave. The Texas Rangers, the FBI. No announcements were made about this, though, for fear that the Phantom would feel emboldened and make yeah. a comeback. But he didn't. Yeah. The Starks were his last attack. And even that, as we've hinted, was possibly not him. Different yeah. weapon, different kind of uh, different place, location you know, in a home instead of a car and on at, at, at a quiet neighborhood instead of a lover's lane. Well, that, a, but that would make sense because nobody's going to lover's lanes anymore. That's true. But also a married couple yeah. and they're older. Nothing fit the, the MO, no. as they'd say. But again, people change their MO. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. Eventually, though, most law enforcement involved in the case came to think that the lover's lane's initial attacks were not committed by the same person that killed the Starks. Yeah. A lot of people thought that the Starks was a different perpetrator. I, I, I do, too. Yeah. I think, I it's, think good, it's, at least it's very really, possible. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. possible, too. 
There was some interesting timing to the case. The Starks case did dovetail, though, with the weekend-only thing, and it was three weeks after, which that was kind of a pattern, three weeks on the weekend. So, you know, you you start to wonder if if it is related to, if they are all related, did the killer work out of the area during the week and maybe Uh, only come home on the weekends? Maybe. I'm speculating here. Like at an oil field or a drilling platform or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Or like a sixteen-year-old, he's got too much homework during the week. He can, <laughs> his dad will only let him use the truck on the weekend. Yeah, but the three weeks could also be. I don't know if Amy's ever looked into this, but the three weeks could be something like you're gone three weeks at a time. Yeah, and you come home or for multiple weeks at a time, something yeah. like that. And he was only able to do these things on the weekends, spread apart. Huh. But like I said, ultimately, I think more differences than there are similarities in the Starks case to make yeah. it questionable that that was yeah. a Texarkana Moonlight murder case. And um, obviously, unfortunately, Katie did not see her perp at all. Otherwise, mm-hmm. if he had a pillowcase, maybe so. But we don't right, know. We'll yeah. never know. And then there were the killings of Lawrence Hogan and Elaine Eldridge on October 8th, 1946, for, so a few months after the Starks case. There were some odd similarities to this murder. The couple was shot in a lover's lane, Mm-hmm. They were young, he 23, she 24, and they had been shot by a 32 caliber gun. Hmm. The key difference, however, was pretty huge. They were killed in Dania Beach, Florida. Oh. Like 1,200 miles away well, from Texarkana. <laughs> These murders are never solved, but some people have thought, okay, maybe he moved on to Dania exactly, Beach and did the yeah. same thing. It's possible. not impossible, yeah. but then that's it. Right. If that's true, that's the last of yeah. his depredations. Maybe huh. Virginia Carpenter was murdered closer to home, back in Texarkana on June 1st, 1948. So did he come back to Texarkana? No. A little bit later, a couple <laughs> well, years after the last ones. Where was she murdered? She in Texarkana. No, but I mean in her home, and I'm assuming not in Lover's Lane by herself. I, I'm sorry, she was from Texarkana. She was murdered in Denton, Texas. So she attended Texas State College for Women, and she arranged for, so she took a cab from Texarkana, her home, back to school, right, mm-hmm. on June 1st. She arranged for the cab driver who took her from the train station in Denton to pick up her stuff at the station and take them to her dorm room the next morning. I mm-hmm. guess she didn't want to deal with it that, that night. It was late at night. That's <laughs> weird. Yeah, it is kind of weird, isn't it? But he's going to, he said, okay, for an extra fee, whatever. Oh, yeah, I'll go back to the train mm-hmm. station. I'll drop off your uh, bags at your dorm building, right? The driver did exactly that. He set down the suitcase in front of Breckenridge Hall, where it sat for three days. Uh-oh. Oh, shit. The police found out about it. They tracked down the cabbie. He said Carpenter had been speaking to two young men when he had dropped her off that night. Like, mm. she gets out, and he spotted her speaking to these two guys. She seemed to know them, he said. Those men were never found. And the police eventually ruled out both the cab driver and Virginia's boyfriend. Virginia, however, disappeared and was never found. Wow. Oh. So some people think That's that scary. because she was from Texarkana, did she, I don't know, the victims, did, she, did the, the killer know her? We don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Also, that. I don't think yeah, it's connected. I don't at all. See yeah, it's kind of like Jack the Ripper. Some people put 
several more murders on onto the ledger yeah. of Jack the Ripper that are almost certainly yeah. had nothing to do with Jack the Ripper. It's kind of like that. You're looking for these just random people who have some attachment to Texarkana. It's not even in Texarkana where yeah. this happens. She just happened to, to live in Texarkana. Even, some people think even other mur- victims, uh, there were other victims of the Slayer. A guy named Earl McSpadden was murdered only a few days after the Starks attack in Texarkana. His body found on May 7th on a railroad track. It had been run over by a train. The coroner saw clear evidence that McSpadden had been murdered and then placed on the tracks. But the sheriff thought he's a drifter and he'd just fall onto a track and it ran, the train ran him over. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, some people think he was the Phantom Slayer himself. And this had been kind of his suicidal end. Huh. He had died, however, from a deep gash on the head. And so probably not from the train. Yeah. And so the coroner was almost certainly right. And the, the sheriff in this case just lazy. And he had nothing to do with the Phantom Slayer whatsoever. Yeah. But it's likely the Phantom Slayer left town not long after the Starks attack for what you just said. Yeah. It's just it's too hot for him to yeah. be there. So to this day, we have no idea who the Phantom Slayer was. We almost certainly never will. His lasting significance, though, is on what happened to Texarkana, which it still haunts them in a way to this day, because as Emma said earlier, or was was talking about before, I think, right? They still have like like midnight movies and, yeah. and gatherings about the Texarkana slains to I this day in Texarkana. Current as in 2021. They did not that long ago though. Yeah, I watched a documentary that covered this case and it's not an old documentary it's from you know a couple years or a few years ago and they would yeah. do showings yeah they would do showings of the movie and it's um, obviously it's, it's kind of campy mm-hmm. but still it's a big deal there now still yeah i don't know i don't know how the families of the victims would feel about that probably not great around? but yeah. i'm sure they don't but it's yeah. a little uh, insensitive it's yeah extremely so but Show is doing a flipping podcast about it too. <laughs> We've been quite reverent here. It's awful what happened. Yes. Carrie's the one who's been bad mouthing most of the victims. It's not, <laughs> we're fine with it. By the way, urban legend of the hook, the hook found, yes. you know, the lover's lane yes. thing where mm-hmm. there's someone out escaped from prison or something like that and they have a hook for a hand and they hear and they're That's making what out. The documentary was. Oh, it was, was it? It's called Killer Legends. Ah. And they kind of. Tried yeah. to figure out what maybe yes. the root cause of these urban so, legends were. So they talked about the Texarkana murders because of the hook. The urban hook thing though is that, and, and then so they hear like rustling or something like that, and they think, and they they drive away, and then when they get home, there's a, a, hook, a hook on the on car the handle car somehow. Handle. So yeah. they're the killer was just about to break in and kill them. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's the whole urban legend. Basically, it has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the Texarkana murder. That's just but nonsense. They yeah. became connected because of the yeah. Lover Lane angle. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a lot of people think there's yeah. a connection there, but it's not. Yep. Yeah. I hate to poo-poo with that. The uh, documentary poo-pooed that. Did it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, because they were trying to find some actual true crime that could have spawned an right. urban legend. And, you know. What about no connections to Zodiac Killer? No, but it is interesting, isn't it? Some people think that, I mean, no, you know, you don't think it's the same person, if that's what you mean. But yeah. some people think maybe the Zodiac Killer had been inspired by yeah. the location because yeah. yeah, he started out in Lover's Lane, right. things like that. So it's, pos- it's possible. It's possible. It's just a very convenient yeah. place to kill someone. Yeah. yeah. They're alone. <laughs> it's and lonely. Secluded. It's a, yeah. And <clears throat> I'm sure there have been plenty other incidents of the same type of murder. Probably. Well, probably, but it, I don't know. If there was a serial killer doing that, I, I there probably have been other lo- lovers laying yeah. serial oh, killers. Yeah, yeah, I just don't know about them. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you, you, but no, people do. Some people do connect in that the yeah. zodiac to this. Yeah. Too. Well, yes. we know who the zodiac killer is, so it was Ted Cruz. It's Ted Cruz. Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. <laughs> that's a known fact. Like it's yeah. not a mystery anymore. No, it's, it's Ted it's Cruz. His face just melts into a new shape every mm-hmm. few years. And his so demon and creature. Ted Cruz's dad was DB Cooper. Pretty sure. I thought, oh yeah, I yeah. thought he killed JFK. Both. Carrie, you can you can, you can do multitask, both. Oh, okay. Years apart. I mean, come <laughs> prolific. On. Obviously, Jesus. So that's the story, the two-part story of the Texarkana Moonlight Murder. Murders. Fun. Yeah. Thanks, Dean. Super fun. We promise. We keep promising more upbeat. <laughs> I know. And we keep not <laughs> well, delivering more exist. upbeat. So I'll think of some upbeat okay. stuff. Okay. Do some something upbeat. Something okay. weird but upbeat. Weird but happy. Happy weird. Okay. I'll find something. Mm. Would you like to tell them where they can find us and stuff like that, Carrie? Um, Weird World Podcast on um, the internet okay, at gmail.com on Facebook and Instagram and Patreon and Weird World Pod on Twitter. Hey, hey. Thank you. I tweeted about this last night. He I'll tweeted. Tweet, I, I will Tweeted. I'll tweet. I'll tweet, man. Okay. Yeah, there, there's probably a lot less tweets in the world now that um, what's his name can't tweet anymore. Yes, there are. You need to fill that void. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll do that. He shall not be named (laughs) ever again. (laughs) Voldemort. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time. Peace up. Peace up. People don't say that. Yes, they do. They say peace out. Tits up. Okay. Carrie. (laughs) Inappropriate. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.